welcome back, dreamers, to the final episode of the Dole Up and Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for going on every deep dive with me. It has been an amazing year. But we have some amazing things to come as we become Saturday Morning Confidential. Again, you won't have to do anything. The show will just flip over, so stay subscribed. Stay following us on all social media, because I am so excited for you to hear today's episode. I am joined by David Lee Huen as we discuss the controversy that is Mulan 2020. And we'll get to that right after this. Hey, Nerf Herders, my name is Case Aiken, and for over two years, I've hosted my show, Another Pass, where I sit down with interesting guests to talk about movies that we find fascinating but flawed. Good movies, bad movies, doesn't matter. We find ways that they could have been improved. So if you ever thought that a sequel dropped the ball by forgetting about a plotline, that an epic could have been saved by introducing the director to an editor, or that a comedy didn't work hard enough to have some substance behind the laughs, then check out Another Pass podcast at certainpov.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, that's it. Dishonor. Dishonor on your whole family. Make a note of this. Dishonor on you. Dishonor on your cow. Stop. Welcome back, dreamers, for our final episode of the Dolpin Dreams podcast. Uh, Thank you all for listening and the way you will, but I am so excited for you all to hear our guest today. Uh, He is from one of my favorite podcasts, Encounter Party. I just want you all to welcome David Huynh. David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. So why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and give us a little uh, background about who you are. My name is David Huynh. I'm an actor living in New York City, based in Brooklyn. I've been doing a lot of theater work since I moved here about five years ago, but with COVID happening, I'm pivoting into film, TV, voiceover stuff. Most recently, I did the narration for one-third of the latest Minecraft novel, Minecraft the Shipwreck, and also I play Saloran Trent on the hit D&D podcast, Encounter Party. And it is a hit. Let me tell you, you when you were first introduced in season two, I immediately texted Ned and was like, one, this man is an amazing D&D player. Two, voice of golden velvet. Like, I, <laughs> I just enjoy listening to your voice so much. It's just so... Uh, 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 Oh, God. Words are failing. Uh, it's just so pleasant to the ears. But also, you are a phenomenal D&D player. Some of the... Str- uh, <laughs> I was about to say strategery. This is not my evening, apparently. <laughs> strategery. Uh, no, I love str- it. The strategery. Uh, some of what you've been doing with Saloran, uh, not to spoil anything for anyone uh, that hasn't listened, but what you all are doing in the Undercity right now is amazing. It's, oh, thank you. It's just, it's so good. So that's why I was uh, I literally listening to this week's podcast earlier, running errands, and I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I constantly text Ned and just be like, what are you all doing? My heart. But okay. So before we jump into this episode, which is going to be unique for everyone out there because we are in COVID times, which meant film studios are having to release movies in unusual ways. Um, and Disney kind of made a jump to how they were releasing this. Um, but could you talk about um, maybe growing up with um, Disney, if it was an, um, uh, part of your kind of the um, lexicon of media that you uh, took in, and what does it mean now that you are an adult performer as well? 
Disney was huge growing up. I mean, I, I remember the first movie I saw in theaters was The Lion King. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was such a huge fan, and I remember, like, the, the spinoff chocolates that they would sell. Like, it was a huge part of my mm-hmm. upbringing. And then growing up with movies like Aladdin, which is still one of my favorite movies, and then Pixar with Toy Story. And then when I saw Mulan in 1998, that was the first time I had seen Asian representation in such a mass media way. And that was really cool to see not just faces that looked like mine, but they were adventurous, brave, funny, and it became kind of like this cultural touchstone for all millennials our age, you know? Mm-hmm. And then Absolutely. Now in my adulthood, it's so interesting seeing ways that Disney has an influence kind of on all levels of the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you have my some of my friends are character actors in Disney World and Disneyland. Some of them have originated roles in Disney Broadway shows. And now, you know, being part of the Marvel or Disney franchise is kind of like a rite of passage on your way to movie stardom. So it's still yeah. such a large part of our cultural zeitgeist. It's kind of incredible, the staying power. So saying that, what um, were your... So Disney has been doing this thing where, and it's kind of become evident that it is in many ways to keep copyright of certain open domain characters that Disney has then trademarked and whatnot. What did it mean for you when they started announcing, what were some things going through your head when they announced that they were going to make a live action Mulan? First, I thought, it could go really bad because there mm-hmm. is a history of whitewashing in a lot of films. So they oh, easily yeah. could have cast, like I think of the original movie where I think most of the singing was done by white performers and some of the mm-hmm. cast were not East Asian performers. So mm-hmm. I was really worried and a lot of people in the Asian American, Asian acting community were really worried that they would whitewash the film. So that was first and foremost on my mind. But then also I thought, what if it's good and they get it right? It would be such a huge opportunity. I mean, we, a few years ago, we had Crazy Rich Asians, and that mm-hmm. blew the door open for East Asian and Southeast Asian performers. So I was hesitant, but still really hopeful that they could get it right and be a boon for the community. Great. I was very excited um, because early on, they also leaned into the idea that there were going to be no songs Mushu would not be there. Li Shang would not be there in the same uh, role that he was before. Um, and that they were going to lean into, um, uh, I guess, as a costume or what I would call a genre film. And this yeah. idea that they were going to lean into the aspect of what Chinese film is, what Chinese epic film was. Um, and so uh, initially I had the same two thoughts of, ooh, none of these live actions are very good. Like, I think we had just gotten Aladdin when they had announced this one, and we were like, oh, oh right. okay, great. And Beauty and the Beast had come out, and we were like, okay, good. And that's why I was like, okay, maybe singing is okay that we're not going to have singing. Um, <laughs> but then the trailer came out, and uh, what were your thoughts seeing what they had done for the first time? Because we still hadn't heard much about the film other than that it was being made and that they were shooting it in China for the most part. What were some of your thoughts when you saw the trailer? The trailer was... It made me a bit skeptical, Mm -hmm. just to be frank. Mm -hmm. It was beautiful. 
But at the same time, I was so confused by some of like the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Wire Kung Fu stuff. Oh, yeah. So I was really worried because then it started showing elements of Orientalism and other tropes that we have a history of their, I guess, a power fantasy or Mm -hmm. some like magic that is imprinted on the Asian characters in a film that make them like Mm -hmm. kung fu masters. And like that was a big red flag for me. Um, A part of me, at first I was like, cool, no Mushu, no Li Shang. Like this could be a really interesting retelling because at the same time, I, I'm not interested in one-one retellings of like you, you right. translate an animated mm-hmm. film to a live-action film. I'm interested in seeing how they take advantage of this new medium and push forward this narrative that they that they're interested in, you know, producing. But that yeah. trailer, I gotta be honest, like it put me on edge because I was a bit wary of the Orient. Uh, I was a bit wary about the Orientalism, mm-hmm. which is something that we are still. Having to, well, it's one reason why you're on the show today. It's so we can have this conversation of what it means and how and why it's still being used uh, by a lot of uh, white-centric Hollywood creators and producers. Um, I had kind of the same reaction. I, at first, I'm somebody, I'm a music person. So if there's like, when they put that like beating version of reflection under it in the ballad and I was like, oh, I'm kind of excited. And then I watched it again and went... Oh, I missed that the first time. Oh, I missed that the first time. Oh, I really missed that the first time. And then every time I watched it after that, I got less and less excited. But I was yeah. like, you know what? Maybe, maybe this will be okay. I was like, maybe. And then was when I started looking into who the 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 creators were, who the the minds behind it went, and I went, oh no, oh no, it's all white people. It's all relatively yeah. young white people, which you know sometimes can be good, can be bad. Um, but, you know, we've got, uh, you know, a New Zealander as the uh, uh, mind behind it. And while, you know, in theory, a female director is great for this. I'm glad she, you know, that they went with a female director. But you can't tell me that there wasn't, you know, a, a Chinese-American or a Chinese director, female a female director who could have taken this and done something with it. Um, especially when it was, uh, you know, they were, uh, Nikki Caro, who is the director, was talking about how she was inspired most by the original poem and the Beijing opera. Um, yes, which, which is, is great. Which is great. And we have to talk about, no, I didn't get a chance to watch it. Um, but at the same time, there was a, a young Chinese film director who was pitching an epic version of the... Uh, f- um, Hua Mulan uh, opera for um, Chinese film companies and Disney chose not to side with them or not to kind of partner with them to make a uh, film that would be made by that company, but then released internationally with Disney to make their own, which I, you know, the, the trailer and everything I've watched of the other version, I went, Oh, they got everything right. Obviously. (laughs) So like why, you know, I, there is it's one of the, it's one of the, I think ahead. one of the dark sides of the um, the staying power that Disney has, and mm-hmm. like they just had their shareholder meeting, right? And they're releasing over twenty four different new titles, right? And yes. while it's really great for fans of those franchises, it's kind of the dark side of the staying power, which is they they influence 
popular thought and popular media to such a strong extent. Yep. So when a piece of content that is being incubated and created by someone of that community comes forward, it's a little disheartening how Disney can just not shut it down, but kind of block the exposure that could be possible uh-huh. for that piece of media. Uh-huh. And I um, think... Oops, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Well, and I was going to say that I think... Because, you know, we were, you know, this movie was supposed to come out in March, then it was supposed to come out in August, and then they said Christmas, and then they said, fuck it, we'll put it online. Um, And so, you know, Disney Plus, I, you know, being a Disney podcast, I have more than, you you know, gotten my money's worth out of Disney Plus, and... Disney on their own has such a big catalog that has often been hard to track down on streaming sites. You know, it made sense that Disney would make their own streaming site. And then the idea after, you know, Universal decided they were going to release at a uh, pay-per-view style or rental style of their movies because, you know, people got paid. So the studio (laughs) needs to get paid at some point. Um... You, you, you know, you don't want to have 15 or 16 films sitting around ready for release, just not being released. Right. Um, so Disney made the choice to um, release online for a premium of $30 for an early $30, $30 for an early viewing, which meant you could watch it as much as you wanted. It wasn't a rental or you could wait till December 2nd and it became mass viewing through Disney plus. Um, and that's when I started really worrying about the content of the film because a lot of things were starting to come out at that point And a lot of really negative kind of feedback was starting to happen. And, um, I've worked for the magic makers in the past and I was supposed to be working for the magic makers, but we are not currently because of COVID. Um, And Disney has this beautiful habit of being able to, like you said, ignore when they fuck up royally and just move past it. Because, you know, when you've got nine titles in a year coming out, you know, six of which are blockbusters, they can do this thing where, uh, you know, this is just jumping ahead in the conversation a little bit. I, someone I work with, um, is roommates with someone who works in streaming and, uh, marketing side. And they came to work on Monday and were told, don't mention Mulan. Just don't mention it after it premiered on Friday for streaming. And they were never to mention it again in the offices. It was never to get brought up in meetings. It was never to be compared to when they were doing future planning. Uh, and that is something that, again, I feel like most of the dreamers at home listening to this are just rolling their eyes. Because like you said, that is something that's so distinct, distinct, distinctively Disney that they can get away with that and do it and never have to be held responsible for sometimes I don't want to say making a bad movie, but in this situation of making truly unethical choices in order to make a movie, um, and then put the movie out. Um, so before we even get into the ethical stuff, just talking about like accurate representation and what it means to the Chinese people. I know that, Because China is becoming a large market for film, it's on track to surpass the U.S. market. So a lot of larger production companies now have to take that into consideration. And Disney really seems that they went whole hog into this partnership with the Chinese government. But in a weird way, I think a large part of this is because it was a mostly white production team Mm -hmm. with very few East Asian voices. 
they missed the mark on accurate representation of Chinese culture, Chinese history, and what this story means to the Chinese people. Yes. Like, is this is a story that is taught in school in a way that's similar to us learning about George Washington. Yeah. And the criticism I saw from Chinese people abroad was saying, like, simple stuff, like the building where she lives, that would not be the actual architecture that um, Hua Mulan would have lived in. Or mm -hmm. why is this Song Dynasty architecture, this should be Wei Dynasty architecture? Or mm -hmm. then they would also have problems with the messaging where they felt it was leaning too Western, mm -hmm. too feminist and heavy handed in the way it was being told the story. So I think a lot of it was a lot of it was trying to placate a lot of people at once, but mm -hmm. they ended up missing the mark entirely. Whereas yeah, if I... they had um, East Asian experts on the team, East Asian mm -hmm. design team, I think the story could have been told in a more faithful way that wouldn't have met with so much disdain from the Chinese audience. Absolutely. Well, because this was even a story that was repurposed by the Communist Party in the 30s, 40s, and 50s when yes. they were completely shut out. And this became a huge propaganda piece for them, this story. Um, and so it's one of those that they have... So for such an old story, they have so many versions of this story to pull from, which is what Disney does anyway. And they just ignored it, which is so funny to compare this with like Coco, where it was an all white team early on. And then they all went, oh, we can't do this on our own because we are missing the mark. And then brought in seven well-known Mexican and Mexican-American scholars, filmmakers, poets, writers, to make sure that the story from top to bottom was um, in tune with the, the community that would be viewing it. Um, right. And, you know, for a lot of people who don't know, uh, like you said, the Chinese film market is incredibly difficult for Western films to boom in but they are booming in many ways and disney gets like four major releases there a year and then they did then do have to cater their films to um kind of the ethics policies of the the government um and so this was an opportunity for them uh for one of their four major releases and i think even in a non-covid time this coming out it would have still fallen as flat as it kind of has as many Chinese people boycotted it after not for any political reason that Americans boycotted it for yeah. but otherwise they were like you fucked up our story how how can you fuck this up so bad like how did you mess this up um, in, in such a it, large country I'm looking at the New York Times article that said it brought in 23 million dollars in China in opening weekend and yep. that's that's very it sounds like a lot, but it's actually a very tepid number when you're it considering is. the size of China. Well, and if you compare it to the Star Wars and Marvel numbers from the last few years, it's nothing. Yeah, um, right. And, or even with, like, Frozen 2, any of the normal animated Disney films. Um, and Mulan had kind of... Well, com you know, comparing it... You, you spoke earlier about how, while Disney in the original film went, they're all Asian, right? That counts. And everybody's like, oh, okay, you did a little better than Aladdin, but let's keep doing better. Um, 
Because, you know, Aladdin had gotten completely raked over the coals for having absolutely no people of color in it. And then they were like, oh, Pocahontas. And they were like, oh, okay, you can keep trying. <laughs> and we got to Mulan. And they and they were making an attempt um, in the animated version. And the animated version, I think, for me, will still maintain as one of my top five Disney films because it is beautiful and the music is... I know I could also just listen to Leah Salonga sing for hours, but that's oh, just, yeah. just me. <laughs> um, and, and it's got so much heart, you know? So much heart. In this movie, to me, like, it was... I have... Um, I was originally going to uh, watch it when it first came out because I had not quite uh, left the cult yet. And I've had... Um, <laughs> Since David, you and I don't know each other too well. Uh, a lot of people, uh, our listeners, have been kind of following my trajectory with the Magic Makers since reopening the parks in July. And I live in, you asked where I lived earlier, I live in Orlando and I work at the, I work adjacent to the parks. Um, right. And so watching what we are doing to our state and the people that are coming to our state, I am having a very hard time watching us just be covid uh, spreaders, super spreaders, if you will. And so then this came out and I like to consider myself a quote unquote woke white person and, and want to make sure that we're, you know, I'm doing what I actually need to do instead of performative activism as, you know, a white creator, a white theater person, uh, um, to make sure that all the proper voices and all the people who should be seen are seen. And so as this kind of started to unravel, um, uh, it, it became clear that this movie was going to live in infamy. And uh, now that I finally watched it twice today, uh, I, I want it to live in infamy. I want the company to have to deal with the ramifications of their choices. Cause to me, this is clearly, you know, it's, it's when a Broadway show cast Kevin Spacey, even after he's already gone to court for sexual Ooh. assault and putting teenage yeah. boys in the show with him. This to me is, Disney should have pulled this movie. And while I was originally of the thought of, no, uh, you can't, you know, what about all the people who worked on this film? You know, because it's the post-production and the costumers and all the little wardrobe people and the PAs and everyone. Um, I'm always someone that's like, oh, well, what about the work of everybody? But like, yeah, no, this was an opportunity for Disney to educate people on what the actual international film market is, and they chose not to. Um, and that, for me, is the first of many missteps. Um, because I I could be wrong, but I believe with a lot of Chinese film actors and film productions, it is funded through the Chinese government, some of it, I believe. And so a lot of times the... Actors are actual government employees. They work for the government. Um, I could Virtue be wrong. of living in a single-party communist state. Yes. And so it did not... Uh, I think unless there's anything else you want to bring up early, uh, starting to jump in with our controversy with the uh, main actress and then kind of going from there, if you're, if you're up for it. Yeah, let's dive in. Great. Um, so our main actress, who uh, I kind of recognize her from, I, I do purvey in, in uh, Chinese and Japanese films, so I, I do take them Great. in quite a bit. Um, and she is a recognizable face, which is why I was originally kind of excited when she was cast. Um, she is often an actress of few words, um, but I do think she, in her other projects, especially Chinese language films, conveys really beautiful acting through choices that she makes. But... It became 
alarming early on as America is facing police brutality issues. You know, this is nothing new, but you know, it was, I believe in the weekend after George Floyd was murdered, um, it came out that she was in full support of the Hong Kong police who are also guilty of disgusting amounts of violence against the Chinese people and anyone opposing the, um, Chinese government, uh, which, uh, right. as you stated, is a single party. It is a communist party. Um, and she stated that she uh, stood with the police of Hong Kong and their methods. And that quickly got kind of pushed aside uh, through a lot of what was happening in America. But it was something that people went, oh, wait, is this who you want your princess to be? So what were right. some of your thoughts when that kind of started hitting media while we were marching in the streets? Because while it was COVID, we were you know, again, saying we need to stop killing people of color. Like, this is something that needs to stop. It's a really difficult and nuanced discussion because the entire mm -hmm. thing about Hong Kong and mainland China is that Hong Kong has been independent for so long. And so mm -hmm. these protests started springing up because this new law was being passed that supported extradition of Hong Kong citizens to mainland China to mm -hmm. face trial. And so that was a sign of this very slippery slope of reunification between Hong Kong and mainland China. And so mm -hmm. a lot of mainland Chinese actors were coming out. I think a part of it is like you said, they are tied to the government in a way that American actors are not tied to mm -hmm. their government. And so on one hand, I understand being in a rock in a hard place, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you are in, you are working in a country that has a authoritarian government in such a way mm -hmm. and your your views directly impact the trajectory of your career. But, and I, I could have easily understood if like there was radio silence on that front. Mm -hmm. but, but for her, yeah, it was this comment she made. I support Hong Kong police. You can beat me now. What a shame for Hong Kong, referencing the the um, the social action that the protesters were doing. Mm -hmm. And then doubling down on it mm -hmm. after saying it really made it clear to me where she stood. And exactly like you were saying, at this time when American society is becoming more aware about police brutality and honestly about our imperialistic roots as a nation, mm -hmm. it, it is a really sobering thing to see this bright young actress who's going to be symbolized, um, this bright young actress, it's a sobering thing to see this bright young actress who's going to be playing such a strong character have these very, very, very divisive views. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I don't blame people for wanting to boycott the film just on that yeah. alone. Yeah, but I agree. it's Mulan, the yeah. live, action, <laughs> live action adaptation. So there's not just one uh, controversy about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so it's... You know, there's already, now with Disney fans, this happens a lot. There's already this preconceived that white is better, light is better. Um, you know, we still have people, you know, 11, uh, 11 years ago, Princess and the Frog came out and people still do not want a black princess with Tiana. And they will say it. There are people who have said to my face working in the parks that Tiana isn't as good because they just don't like a black princess. Oh. And I 
Oh, so that alone, there were people going, oh, is Mulan really what we need? Or, you know, and this is in the time of, you know, when people are polarized because Scarlett Johansson is saying that she should be able to play, you know, an Asian woman. She should be able to play a trans man. She should be able to play a tree for all, for all they care because she's such a good actress. And so Disney has this habit of finding the worst time to be a company who says almost nothing politically often while saying so much. Um, also the fact that Mulan aside, you know, we have a president who daily was, you know, at war with the, the leaders of China because, you know, one day we are benefiting from a not so ethical, you know, engagement and friendship with that company. And then the next day we are literally at war with that company. And then the next day we have Meditrade agreement again with them. And so I think it is such an interesting time for Disney to, again, try to say absolutely nothing. And that silence then says so much. Right. Silence is affirmation, especially whenever that is the way that the government in China wants their business partners, whether domestic or international to behave. Oh, yeah. Because um, silence is acquiescing to the way, the conditions mm -hmm. that they set. And Disney has two parks that they own in China, one in mainland China, uh, uh, well, in Shanghai, which I, I do not believe is mainland China, but then also in Hong Kong, right. which also was Disney lied and said Hong Kong Disney was going to be the only park um, in China. And then, you know, less than 10 years later went, never mind, we're, we're building an island in Shanghai and we're opening up a bigger park in Shanghai. Um, and so, you know, they have always had a very temperamental, uh, but privileged relationship with the Chinese government. Cause also, mm -hmm. you know, they're dealing with countless hundreds to thousands of years of work visa for their employees and, and those kinds of things to, you know, even to the point where Disney keeps their employees on their Island for their safety. Mm -hmm. Um, and what that means that Disney knows that they're not telling people when they're, you know, bringing people there to work. Um, it's, it's a lot of money. Like it's a cold, lot of hard money. cash on the line. Yep. I'm going and, back to what you said. Yeah. Do you mind if I make an? Uh, speaking of tangents, Please do you mind do. if I make one? Go, so go out. That, those those <laughs> comments about Scarlett Johansson talking about like mm -hmm. oh, I'm such a good actress. I should be able to play a woman. I should play a trans man. I should be able to play a tree. This is this is maybe a unpopular thing to say, but I think in a perfect world, yes, artistic yeah. expression is the ability to express yourself in whatever means and medium that you can. But I think the big issue that we're having right now is access. And mm -hmm. the people who get to tell stories have historically been a homogenous population of one mm -hmm. type of person, right? Mm -hmm. And so now this awareness isn't, isn't coming out to censor people or to stop people from expressing themselves or to showcase their talent. But these voices are coming out in opposition to stuff like this because they want equal and equitable representation mm -hmm. from marginalized voices. They want... Yes, Scarlett Johansson, you are a very good actress. You could, in a perfect world, play a trans man. But how many trans men get to be to the, at the level that you are? Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's about leveling the playing field. And as we've seen with Mulan, when we have people of that community telling those stories, it's a much richer experience. But mm -hmm. when we don't, it, it fails to hit the mark. And oftentimes it fails to hit the mark disastrously. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, in, in the most epic ways. Well, you know, it's one of those moments in like, as an Asian American actor who does theater, you know this, that like for the muggle out there that doesn't really know, typically in a theater breakdown, um, and in film, the only time that a director or a casting director before was going to consider an, a non-white actor was when open ethnicity or any any race was put at the end of a little casting blurb, which meant you could be guaranteed to, you know, be seen this even as a gay actor for years in the city. I, you know, could only be seen for like three or four different things also being plus size. So it's one of those things that... It's when you, when you're talking about that, it is because for so long, it would have been one thing if for years, nobody was bringing people in based on their race, but based on their ability into the room. But right. for so many years that, you know, the, anybody of color or even Italian Americans, Jewish Americans, even down to the most simple things are brought in only for very specific things. And unless you are gorgeous and blonde and ripped, um, you are only going to be seen for very specific things. And so, yes, while in a, because also in that world where, you know, we have full accessibility to trans actors because I'm sorry, trans actors are not given the same, even looking at, um, I just came out of two different, uh, theatrical institutions for education uh, where we had trans students and this, the faculty don't even bother to figure out how to speak to them and figure out mm. what repertoire they need to help them build, let alone give them the tools to go out there and adequately represent themselves and be able to get respect in the space. Right. Um, um, because, you know, we are still not at that point. So yes, it would be lovely if we could be in a world where anyone could play anything, but because we have been vehemently as an industry actually against that for so long, it's not fair for, you know, and I got to say a lot of people like Scarlett Johansson, I've had to wit, I've had to suffer through her in two different Arthur Miller pieces on Broadway. <laughs> she should sit down. She needs to not sit fair. down, <laughs> you know, just, Especially when the thinking about the year she played um, Catherine in View from a Bridge, to think that she beat out Jessica Hecht for a Tony Award for Best Actress, it was ju it was mind blowing, uh, mind blowing when you're Ooh. in a when you're in a when you're in art, uh, View from a Bridge with Leif Schreiber and Jessica Hecht who are doing they are doing Miller off the page, and then she's just flitting around in a tiny skirt, you know. Uh, Tony voters. That's a whole nother conversation. That's a whole nother conversation. That's, and like, uh, that's the effect a, of star power on mm -hmm. the theater. Yeah. That's uh, Aaron Tavey being the only actor nominated for best actor in a musical uh, uh, kind of conversation that we're having this year. Um, but it is, you know, it's one of those things that like, sure, that would have been great. And that's why it was, you know, I then went as, as actors started coming up and I was going, wait, are they, are they, Chinese are you just kind of casting everybody again or is are you just doing this thing where you're like oh they're Asian that's fine we're um, jumping back to Mulan yes mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sorry seen, yes <laughs> no no you're good I I've I've helped my friends prep for these tapes and I mean at that level like my, my I know I helped a, a friend of mine who's Korean American prep for cricket I helped mm -hmm. another friend of mine who's Malaysian American prep for another role and it was it very it very much seemed like they were casting uh, East or Southeast Asian performers, um, regardless of their relation to Chinese culture or Chinese mm -hmm. society, which uh, that's that's also a different that's that's also a larger conversation about like authentic versus just representative um, representation. Yeah, which that's that's also another really tricky one because I don't think that we're quite there yet with mm -hmm. like 
American medium at large. But because this is pulling from all over the world, I was surprised at how many people were being called in. I was shocked that, you know, you have access to not just Americans, but mm-hmm. Chinese people and Chinese in Australia, Chinese abroad. Like, mm-hmm. I was surprised that they, they weren't uh, focusing mostly on casting Chinese actors. Well, and also because if they, you know, when, when Nikki Haro was like, oh, I love the opera. And I was like, some of the Beijing and Peking opera performers that are in China right now or, or uh. worldwide doing it are some of the most phenomenal actors in the world. Yeah. And they don't just need to sing in order to perform. And I was like, why not go with some of those actors as well? I mean, I love that we've got. Asian American actors that are getting their opportunity for a large Disney scale. Um, but it's, yeah, uh, it's, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like it's, so much wasted opportunity. Yeah. So, well, and again, it was an opportunity because Disney is one of the few companies that has the, the star power of themselves and the money that they could have literally found an unknown young Chinese director and a young Chinese artist. We, um, um, at USITT two years ago, we had, um, several costume and scenic designers come from the Beijing Institute, um, to show some of their work. And it was some of the most breathtaking. I don't even want to say student work. It is some of the most breathtaking theatrical design work that I've seen in my entire life. And so to know that, and it was, it was, it was so cool to see, but also then get to, you know, take all of the pictures and go back and, you know, we were in, I was in an Asian theater course at the time and going, oh my God, let's keep talking about design and how, you know, we didn't, you know, they figured out how to make Alpha of a Fly in 2003 and Wicked, but they've been making people fly in Kabuki and Beijing opera since 1200. So it's yeah. like, let's, let's talk about what we're not doing in the U.S. because <laughs> spectacle is something that is so brilliant and stunning that has come out of Beijing opera for thousands of years that we think we've kind of developed the, 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 the spectacle musical, but like we're not. And it just shows how little Americans actually understand or know. And it's, I think a lot of times why Americans can't have a nuanced conversation about what's happening artistically and, and dealing with, um, uh, the issues of non-white actors because they right. are almost purposely as an industry and as a country, um, we have not been taught how to have those conversations so that we just don't have them. And so now right. we're at a point where we are trying to have them and you can see people getting so frustrated because they just can't figure out how to have these conversations. Right. It's um, a, it's a muscle that we just haven't flexed enough and now yeah. we're feeling negative effects from it. Um, going oh, back yeah. to what you were talking about, about how um, East Asian artists have mastered the art of spectacle, I was really, I was really disappointed in the way that they handled like the wire foo. Like yes. so much of it was beautifully shot. I think this is one of the mm-hmm. most beautiful movies I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. But the way that they implemented like the kung fu and the idea of chi within the first few minutes of the film, I was like, mm. yes, I this this already does not bode well. Like, yep. they sold the idea of qi, which in Chinese medicine is the idea of the life force that is shared with between all things, that all things mm-hmm. possess. And in this, they made it this, 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 like, magical energy that is supposed to be only for boys, but somehow Mulan has, which mm-hmm. allows her to do all of these 
amazing kung fu stunts, which now all of a sudden there's there's this this layer of Orientalism that I was talking about. You've made the main character not really human. You're elevating her to something else, and you're using East Asian trappings to kind of set her apart. Like she's she's the best because she can do magic and do kung fu, mm-hmm. not necessarily because of like her inner content, who she is as a person. And again, I think that goes back to like us talking about how this film lacks heart. Because Mulan in the animated movie is a normal person that had, like bumbles along, stumbles oh, along, yeah, is guided by a dragon who does not know any better, but through her personality, her iron will, and the bonds that she makes with the people that she goes to war with, like that becomes so much more. But in this mm-hmm. film, it just felt like it felt kind of formulaic to me I, mm-hmm. I, I I hate to say it but I felt like I was watching a Mary Sue on screen and I thought oh God yeah. what a what a shame and it's it's evident that this director well one because she's directed less than like 10 things films mm. which and you know it's like the zookeeper's wife and things that are just not on the scale of this you can also tell that she has not worked with actors who English is not their first language right um and again, it's probably a very Disney thing. I'm wondering how many translators were on were on set and things because uh, I read in one of the LA Times review that they were like every actor, even the ones who are known to be legendary actors, gave the most stilted and flat performance because it seemed like that's what they wanted out of the film. Like they just wanted it to be pretty. Um, And even when it was pretty, some of the shots of her doing like backflips and things when the camera would rotate, it ruined all of the beautiful camera work that had already been done because it was like they were trying to cheat something and show us how it was happening instead of just letting it happen and us be marveled. Like this was a movie. I wanted it to be like the forbidden kingdom. I wanted, um, IP man. I wanted some of these, like, uh, you know, the difference between Chinese and, and Japanese film, but like, you know, even, with movies like Shaolin Soccer and um, <laughs> and uh, Kung Fu Hustle, which are you know parodies of their genre um, and very intelligent, I, they're some of my favorites. Again, those are uh, kind of Japanese specifically, but I just they they are so smart in in acknowledging what they're doing. And this movie was like they were trying to do a parody of a genre no one knew anything about. Um, I- and with, and it's just, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, it's just with Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle, like they had some iconic Chinese stars, iconic, oh, yeah. uh, iconic uh, Kung Fu movie stars. And and I think that they gave some of the best performances of their career. And oh, it's so yeah. much fun. They don't they don't take themselves too seriously. Whereas like Mulan, it just feels it feels stilted because mm-hmm. it, I, it felt like it was stilted because they knew how big this film was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they pumped more story into this than we needed that then distracted from so much right. and really did a disservice to, again, I get that this movie, once we hit a part, there are no female characters for a reason. And I kind of get it, but I still didn't find myself rooting for either of the two women that we had. Like, I don't root for Mulan in this because I know she's going to do it because that's the kind of movie they've told us in the beginning. Where in the animated, you're like, how is she going to do this? Right. And right. from the moment where we, I almost didn't want to see her as a teenager, that kind of ruined a lot of what they were going to do for me. Yeah, um, same. 
And her sister has zero less agency than Mulan has, and Mulan has no agency of her own in this movie. Right, that was um, such an interesting, like, they introduced this plot line that I thought was going to be going somewhere, but then they drop it. it. It did feel like that, though, with a lot of different things that they introduced in the film. Mm-hmm. It was like you're, they're introducing it for the sake of introducing it, and they're just going to drop mm-hmm. it, like, a scene or two after. And it was, it, it made me, I guess, it for me personally, it made me cling onto this hero narrative that mm-hmm. Mulan was going, like, like I never doubted she was going to be the hero, because, like you're yep. saying, it kind of trains us to expect that. And with all these plot lines being dropped, it, I kind of just like clung on to that and was just like, okay, well, mm-hmm. this is the story that they're telling. I see. Yep. Okay, so before we jump into the film, I want to bring up kind of one more thing about production aspects. Um, it became evident in one of the provinces that they filmed in, in Hong Kong, that literally over a mountain ridge is the um, accused, and I'm going to say accused even though we've all seen the photos and we've seen the videos, that the Chinese government is holding about a million Muslim Chinese citizens in concentration camps. And that by Disney picking this place to film in and their agreement with the Chinese government that they are being literally apathetic and and allowing this group that they're working with to commit genocidal crimes on an international level. And then after Disney could have addressed it, they didn't. And then have, instead of just a, um, you know, how all films have a, this was filmed here, there was a thank you note from the heads of Disney Thanking this particular province, Hong Kong, their police force for and and the local ordinances for their gracious use of the uh, for filming. And then they put it at the end of the film after we've gone through everything else. Like this is just another moment of Disney being not even just tone deaf. It's like willfully ignorant because they know people they know that they are so powerful that in this moment when we're already falling apart with Trump, they're like, great, who's gonna who's gonna come after us? Right. And so what what were your thoughts when those kind of things started coming out right before the release of the movie? That was when I just knew that I couldn't morally support the film. So I kind of mm-hmm. went social media dark on this film. Like I, I yep. had high hopes for it. You know, like I was a big supporter of Crazy Rich Asians when it came out as a big move forward oh, yeah. for the industry, mm-hmm. for uh, Asian American actors in the industry and, 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 and creatives in the industry. But with this, it didn't feel morally good to push mm-hmm. the film forward. And with Sun Jiang and the treatment of the Uyghurs, it, it was really disappointing to see... I'll read you the quote like that mm-hmm. Disney said. They said... Oh, please after, do. After the uh, people were pointing out that they thank the um, officials of this province for allowing them to film and providing them police officers, and people had an uproar about that. All Disney said was, it is standard practice across the film industry worldwide to acknowledge in a film's credits the cooperation, approvals, and assistance provided by various entities and individuals over the course of a film's production. And it's going back to what we said before. It is a non-answer, but that Mm -hmm. silence is an affirmation to the Chinese government. So by not taking a stance or trying to stay apolitical, they're, they're really taking a side with this. Mm-hmm. And it's like you said, they're so big that 
they can afford to. They don't have to mm-hmm. take the quote-unquote morally right side. They can just keep their head down and it'll blow over for them because they are such a huge entity. And you have enough people who are very... I don't even want to make this about conservative and liberal according to American concepts, but from someone who's working at the parks right now and can see we're still covered in Trump garb and things that like there is a certain group of people that if Disney were to lean in and go really hard with this and like own up to it, that they would get double the support because Disney is supporting the disenfranchisement of people, brown people, non-white people. Um, And then you also have the people who are, you know, the, the Disney adults, which I was one of them, uh, you know, the Disney gays, those kinds of things who, no matter what the company does, will always support and uh, get behind them. And even I can, I have to come out and say that when uh, I released an animated Mulan episode weeks before the animated movie came out and right before any of the political things came out about the film, mm-hmm. and I encouraged every one of our listeners to watch. And so I have to take that back now because that was just... You know, I said so on our social media, I've said so on several other episodes, but it is just, uh, you know, I immediately, when I saw everything, I felt sick because of that. Just because, you know, I was then contributing to the complacency, if nothing. And for me right now, the complacency is worse than Disney going, oh yeah, we totally support the Chinese government because of how much money they give us. The silence to me is even worse than them going, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't we support the Chinese government? I feel like to me, the silence is even worse. Right, because you don't know really where they stand. But again, it's it's about that cold, yeah. hard cash. And this year, after they've laid off so many people, and they were like, oh, we're going to be in a $2 billion deficit when they're still going to clear $4 billion in profits this year. Right. What company is going to... Yeah, you know, nope. I... Just even Mulan, where like the projections were saying that it was underperforming, it had a two million, two hundred million dollar budget, and it had grossed something like seventy million dollars worldwide in the box office. That's not counting streaming costs. But now, with data from Seven Park Data, um, a third of households in America with a Disney Plus subscription made the decision to rent the movie. Of course, and then if we factor in everything across the planet, like it's it's. It's getting up, uh, just counting America, the United States, Disney is netting a profit of more than $261 million off of Mulan. So they've made their money back from Mulan already. And if, oh, yeah. if, if their decision, uh, this reinforces to them that their decision to stay apolitical and stay silent was the right call. And that's also, I think, a, yep. a sign of where we are as a society, where we we are complacent. We don't care about those things because we're still willing to fork over a quarter of a billion dollars to support this film. Yep. And, but then you've got the same company that can't stand up and help protect, you know, Kelly Marie Tran or, uh, or, um, Halle Bailey as they have literally had to remove themselves from social media after, you know, role of a life, accepting a, a, a major, named character in a star Wars film, or you get to be live action aerial. Like those should be the things that dreams are made of for some people. And then to have an entire millions of fan base come after you online. And then the company who said, Oh yeah, we believe that you should do this. Then turn around and go, Oh, we don't have to support you online. You just did the job. And then it's like, 
Oh God. Oh God. Because then the complacency of the company is, you know, it's like the thing where Trump isn't specifically going out and saying, kill queer people, kill black people, but his complacency and telling, you know, proud boys be ready. It says the exact same thing. And actually in many ways it says worse things. Right. And so it's, it's, you know, Disney's still making money. It's everybody in Florida right now is like, well, we want to go spend money to make sure that they don't lay off anybody else. And I was like, girl, they're going to lay off everybody they want because this is what they've been wanting to do for a long time. COVID yeah. just so happened to happen at a good time that they could fire everyone. Right. Th- this has been coming for a long time. Um, invest in the people, not the company. Like Invest like, in your people, especially with Disney, because right. I will still say with all of my problems, Disney does things that nobody else does. Like on the parks level, movie level, musicals, like they just, there's a grandeur to what they do. There is a nostalgia. There is a magic to it. But like, I, I thought yeah. Disney was actually very brave to offer this $30 fee to stream Mulan because, you know, we were in the middle of a pandemic and mm-hmm. we were a few months into it at that point. And you're like you were saying, the the backlog of these finished films that had no way of mm-hmm. distribution was building. And so Disney, I thought, made a really ballsy effort to like get this film out. And on some level, on the question of accessibility, it's expensive. Like, $30 Mm -hmm. is expensive, plus the Disney Plus fee. But, like, Mm -hmm. there are ways to finagle it, borrowing a friend's account, borrowing Mm -hmm. a family member's account, that, like, it could be accessible for a large number of people. But I'm very curious about, like, the hard numbers, because this was an experiment on Disney. Like you were saying, they can do things that other people Uh can't, and they can also serve as a model in a way that other companies can't. And now that we have the announcement that Warner Brothers Studio, um, their their log uh-huh. for like 2021 is going entirely on HBO Max, I'm wondering what did they see in this Disney release that did not work for them that made them go this way, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and, uh, you know, Scoob and Trolls had come out before this did, and that was, you know, some of Universal's larger... You know, they're they're the they were the summer family market, but they only marketed at twenty dollars for their films, right. um, and you didn't get to keep them long term. So I'm interested when Disney decided thirty. Now, I was one of the first people that was like thirty dollars for a family of four to go to the movies is nothing. It's actually half of what it would normally cost a family of four to go to the movies just for tickets. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, like you've suggested, I pay for Disney Plus and I have about eight people on my account because Disney it very smartly went, yeah, you can have as many people streaming as much as you want at the same time on multiple accounts. We don't care. And, you know, so I've got Mooch 1, Mooch 2, and Mooch 3 or all of them. <laughs> you know? And again, I don't mind. And I did tell my friends early on, I was like, listen, if anybody wants to see this, if everybody wants to ante up five bucks, we'll all see, I'll, I'll buy Mulan. And nobody wanted to um, for ethical reasons. And so we all decided that we could wait until the second. Um, and I had some friends who illegally downloaded it. Uh, you know, that was their of choice. choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wouldn't normally suggest it, but maybe this one I'm not angry about it. Um, but yeah, I agree with you that it was ballsy. But in a way, also, like, I don't have children. It's not in my, it's not in the cards for me. Uh, <laughs> but I can't imagine being a parent even before COVID dragging a toddler or two to see a movie in a movie theater. Like I remember what frozen two was like last year in the theater and it was an experience. Uh, So so I kind of imagine a lot of parents, despite it being COVID went, 
Oh, it means I don't have to wrestle my two-year-old to stop running around a theater and throwing the $15 popcorn everywhere. Oh, let's stay home and watch this movie. Um, But then it was very interesting because it obviously didn't work because they immediately announced that Soul was going to go free on Christmas Day. Um, Oh, that's a really good point. And uh, again, from another friend on the inside at Disney, Disney's already completely... um, moved past soul and they are not marketing it any more than they've already marketed it. Um, the toys are going to come out as the toys come out and they're just going to leave it. They're going to let it release and move on from it. Um, which, you know, there's been a lot of conversation of great. You have another black lead film, but he spends, we assume a lot of the movie as a ghost, which is interesting. Now that the newest poster that's at Disney Springs is of him and his band. And he as his little ghost version is up in the corner with the little Tina Fey ghost, but it is predominantly all older actors of color or characters of color that are all musicians down in the poster, which made me go, Oh, Disney heard the marketing company heard something happened. Um, but we're not even getting another trailer for soul before the movie comes out which we know nothing about the movie. Um, And so it's that other conversation of what's the point of giving accessibility and stories to groups of people when you're not going to let us physically see them for your movie. That reminds me of this trend that a lot of theater companies do where they program plays that focus on people of color in the Mm -hmm. same slot. Mm-hmm. And and people started realizing that that slot is often the shortest slot. So like where uh-huh. some productions have six weeks where they run, this slot may only have three to five weeks of a run, mm-hmm. which is a commentary mm-hmm. in itself, you know. So yeah, it's it's like it's it's tough because it's a chicken and an egg thing where people say that these kinds of stories don't sell, but then they're not set up to sell. So we're right. continually just trying to like get on some equal footing so we can get our stories out there. And then it's not just about stories too, but like each one of these productions is, is a paycheck is for people to eat and live and like for the, to provide for Mm -hmm. their families. So like the, the effects are very far reaching. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so complicated and it shouldn't be complicated. And you know, it's, you know, frozen was on Broadway. And while I will say it's not the most amazing musical I've ever seen, I thoroughly enjoyed myself for two and a half hours. And it was really interesting to see them kind of throwing traditional casting completely out the window, especially with recasting, but then to continually see the people online who are the ones that are supposed to be the ones that consume the media being like, this isn't what we want. This is garbage. This is trash. We don't want this. And it's like, but, uh, who, why are, why are you all like this? <laughs> you are obviously now on the wrong side of history. I do not understand. But, you know, it's like unless it's a Lin-Manuel made Miranda, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda musical, it's the only time white people are going to go, ooh, ooh, I don't care about white stories when it's like this. Even though, you know, Hamilton's still a white story. Um, just different faces. Um well, that being said, I'm I'm still very much looking forward to seeing In the Heights when that film is released. Oh yes! Oh, I'm a big <laughs> in the I. You know, it's on TikTok right now. Everybody's doing those like this way or that way trends, and someone the other day did one that was Hamilton or In the Heights, and I was like, why would uh, Hamilton? Lovely. It's a global phenomenon. It's getting a lot of people into the theater that never would before. But like, I saw In the Heights nine times in New York. Huh. I wept every time. It is so 
It is so good. Yeah. I just, that, that trailer came, I was, oh, oh, funny story. I was, this time last year, actually, I was watching Cats in theaters. <laughs> uh, and I predominantly went, because I have a couple friends in the Cats film, but I went because I knew the In the Heights trailer was on the Cats film, and I wanted to see it on the biggest screen possible. Um, and it just, oh, I... It's the only thing I'm holding out for in 2021 at this point. Like six opening on Broadway and in the Heights <laughs> coming to theaters. Those are two things I'm holding out for. Can't, at this I can't point. wait to see it. I'm so excited that it's going to be released, um, like streaming. So I'll, yeah, I'll be there whenever it drops. Yep. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be in a hazmat suit first day with my vaccine in the theaters, and then I watch it every day <laughs> streaming after um, at home. Um, but let's, if you're ready, let's jump into the film film and talk about some of these choices yeah, that they made because uh, I could forgive a lot of the film if that like the, um, I don't want to say I could forgive the political nature of the film, but I could forgive a lot if this film was just a knockout, but it is evident from the, the basic script through design choices, through um, shot, like cinematography that no one was on the same page about the movie they were making. On this podcast, we like to right. not talk good or bad, but effective and ineffective choices. And there were so few effective choices in this movie that it's a wonder that this movie kind of makes any sense to me at all. Kind of, right. uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that the um, that a lot of the, having Mulan from the very beginning, we kind of, lose interest in her journey the moment we see that she's a superpowered teenager. Um, and I, I have to agree with you completely, David, that it just, I, and the teenage shots of her, because obviously how do you find a teenage stunt artist? Um, they looked so superimposed that I went, Oh no, oh, yes. oh no, it's a CW show. What are we doing? Right. Yes. I thought that, ex I, it, that is nuts. I totally thought that whenever she jumped off the roof and like, reached out her hand and the bow staff just like landed in her hand. I was like, oh, oh no. <laughs> it felt like watching a CW yeah. show. Uh, yeah, I yes. um, I had issues with the, not just that she's a superpowered teen who is without a doubt, everyone acknowledges that she has access to some amazing power, mm -hmm. but the way that they set up the society also doesn't make sense. I understand they're trying to set up this super patriarchal society that sub subjugates women and oppresses women. Mm -hmm. But on some level, when you have a super-powered woman that is capable of doing these amazing things using the living force of all beings, it, it really makes, it really sets the society up to look really foolish, that they wouldn't recognize mm -hmm. that and take advantage of that, especially whenever they're on the cusp of war. It, mm -hmm. it to me that was a foundational problem with the script. Mm -hmm. Like if the if the um, not even the Huns, they're the Roran. If they're coming mm -hmm. and you're not utilizing your resources the way you should be, like that's that that just it didn't logically make sense to me at all. Because at that point it should be all hands on deck. Anyone who wants to fight, um, any I think a lot of it again. You brought up earlier that history is written by you know, a selective group. And in my history classes in, in school, they, uh, you know, it's history was written by the victor. And so in many ways, this movie is still so cemented in, um, mid century Orient Orientalism and the idea of the ignorant savage. Um, right. And this like, 
you know, they needed something like the matchmaker being so weird and witchy. You needed a witch and you needed this super powered girl in order for anyone to believe that this is a story that could happen. Um, and that like from the beginning it is there and it's yeah. also like we, you know, it's, it's another moment of, it's obviously written from the white perspective of what we think of Asian culture. And a lot of this to me is an overall like amalgamation of Asian culture, not even specifically Chinese culture. I feel like a lot of these things are stereotypes that we think of all Asian people and they just kind of shoehorn them into this. Like the fact that everybody thinks Mulan's a fuck up and that her sister's the golden child, but then her sister has four lines in the whole movie. Like, yeah, there's just a there's interesting choice. Yeah, and from the beginning, they just you can tell that they weren't positive of any choices they made, or they were constantly changing the choices on set, and it is so evident from the beginning. It is it is very clear, and I was reading articles about how they would show audiences test footage while they were in production, and if the audience didn't like it, if it didn't test well, they would go back, change the script, and like shoot a new scene that like put it into the production schedule. So Which yeah. They've been- They've been doing that for 30 years and every time they do it, it doesn't work. Like, like that's why Jeffrey Katzenberg got fired. Like that is how he ran the Disney Renaissance. And it's, you know, it's part of why he, you know, destroyed the legacy of um, uh, Howard Ashman. Like, (sighs) you know, it's just a company that they keep going back to things that just, it just does. I don't get it. I don't get why they all sit in a room, but it's also because I think a lot of it is These are the people, Disney also uniquely does not have film people making their films. The creative decisions are made by business people. It's like Frozen was built from the bottom up with creative people, but business people telling them how to make the decisions. So they were literally grooming a movie to build a franchise that would make billions in merchandise, even if the movie was terrible. And so if you hear like Bobby and Crystal Lopez talk about them writing the score for Frozen, And that there were like eight different versions of the story because the studio kept going, no, that's not going to sell. No, this is what needs to sell. No, this needs to be what works. And it's obvious that this is another way that they did it. Because even like, uh, I'm not big with costume history. It's where one of my weak points are as the designer. But like, I immediately was like flipping through, like I have books on East Asian design and like Asian clothing and textiles. And the fact that they were like the silk road. And I was like, um, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, okay. And, right there. and you know, it's like you brought up earlier, they were combining dynasties. They were combining, you know, there were fabric choices and silhouette choices that they made that were 150 years apart in dynasties. Like they did the same thing with Aladdin, but it was just one of those that it is, None of this feels authentic in a way that makes me care about the world that we're in. Yes. And when we're in a society of people that actually existed who are responsible for some of the richest traditions of textiles and art and dance and the things that they brought to the West, not just what the West brought to the East, but so much of what made the Silk Road successful was what was taken by colonizers or was brought by people traveling the Silk Road back to the West was so much more than I think what actually got taken to the East. Um, And you can see so much of that legacy of, again, people that think they know 
a genre or they know a style of film, but they just don't. Um, a, a, a friend of mine had a really good way of putting this. Um, they're an investment banker, and they their 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 term is like, I, I they because they need to be uh, have their finger on the pulse on a lot of international markets. They have a um, a widespread knowledge of a lot of different topics where like it, but it's like only six inches deep. Where like an expert would have like six feet deep of knowledge, right? And so I felt like this film was being made by people with six inches of expertise. Mm-hmm. And they're marketing it to people who grew up with these stories, who grew up mm-hmm. with this history, who grew up with the sensitivity and sensibility. So you're you have six inches of expertise, and you're trying to sell this to someone that has like three feet of expertise, like since right. birth. Right. Oh, and I just and there were even moments where like the fe- I feel the the Deus Ex Machina moment of the Phoenix. Being shown to us 10 minutes into the movie? Are you... Yes. Also, uh, did they just look at the Zodiac and look at some old Chinese stories and go, bah, the Phoenix, people liked it in Harry Potter, it'll work for Mulan. Like, it it all We can't have a dragon, but we can have a Phoenix. (laughs) Oh, God. I would have almost rathered a tiny talking dragon at this point. Right, voiced by Eddie Murphy, making a reprise. Uh, Um, Nope, no, no, no. What, um... (laughs) Have you seen Jingle Jangle? Not yet. I'm watching it literally after we get off this call. Oh, <laughs> there's um. Okay, so like talking about fabrics and textiles mm-hmm. and costume design, Jingle Jangle does it so well, and I think you'll oh, you really appreciate. Yeah, and and I just saw this article that that coined the term Afro Victorian, and I mm-hmm. thought that was so clever that like you take these textiles and patterns and colors, but you apply it to a. St- this, this silhouette that we're all very familiar with, but it's a very mm-hmm. intelligent way to create um, a new period of fashion for your world. I like hearing you talk about how they fell short and and got kind of lazy with their dramaturgical research on costuming. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it probably would have been a better call just to make up your own vocabulary than try to, like, stitch together one from, like, several yeah. different time periods. I would have rather an amalgamation of a redesign of ancient China than, than them trying to, cause again, it's, uh, it's cause sometimes you got a lot of these film designers who literally only became designers because they assist, they started assisting at a costume house and then they pulled one movie for somebody. And then the, suddenly they're a costume designer mm-hmm. where, um, you know, it's funny you bring up dramaturgy. It's something that uh, it's why this podcast was started was for us to talk about the dramaturgy of Disney films and production and like, where do they fall short? Where are they successful? Um, and this is something they have not gotten right in a single one of the live action remakes. Um, but I love that you bring up that idea of like Afro-Victorianism. And it's actually something so interesting because, uh, so in grad school, my thesis, we did um, the Jackie Sibley jury we are proud to present, the very, very long title. Um, <laughs> and to find out that when the Germans and English colonized Africa, Many of the um, nations of people, including the Herero, um, took on the silhouettes of Germanic and uh, British clothing, but with their own fabrics. And with the Herrera women, there are only probably about 500 that still exist today. They still wear the Victorian German 
clothing um, silhouettes with their contemporarily made fabrics. And it is something that is now wow. intrinsically part of the international Herrero people because they were wiped out, quote unquote, by the German people and only a few of them survived and they left um, Namibia. And so they kind of spread out through the world and they kind of made it their culture, um, which I think is something so beautiful. And I didn't even realize as a designer until we were doing that um, that research. And again, we start off this movie with a ambiguously Middle Eastern trader who is going into a, um, um, and so, and it looked like they literally went to the costume designer of Aladdin and said, what do you got laying around? What, what can we have? Um, which is an interesting thought though, because Agrabah, well, the, the city that would have been Agrabah in the original 1001 Arabian Nights would have been in China. Aladdin would have been Chinese. Like, right. it is a Chinese story traditionally, and we only think of it as Middle Eastern, quote-unquote, because Disney used um, um, Islamic and Muslim motifs of architecture and Arabic uh, language in order to sell Aladdin to the American public. So that's the only reason why we think that's what it looks like. And so from the beginning, I don't know what world we're in. And dramaturgically, this movie needs to drip dramaturgy and it didn't. And it's insulting. Like to me as somebody that like, that's what I do is, is I'm a visual dramaturg. It's what I think right. all design should be. Um, that from the moment they start telling the story and that you can tell they didn't do the work, this was going to be an insult to whoever story this was because they didn't want to do yeah. the work. Um, so what are some things for you as an Asian American that was watching this? What were some other things like just story-wise that maybe not even were insulting, but just stood out as something that was just ineffective storytelling for you? I felt like um, the plot line with the soldier that Mulan bumps into at the very beginning when she gets there mm-hmm. um, I think it's Chen Huang Hu, but uh, mm-hmm. that that storyline felt like they were trying to lace back in the the Shang Li storyline about like, uh-huh. you know, does this does this commanding officer think that he's in love with a man? Like, does she fall in love with him? And in the original film, you know, with us growing up with it, Shang became kind of like a bisexual icon. He absolutely is. And that was, the, I'm going to put a pin in that because I'm going to come back to that. There is a lot to talk about with that in this yeah, movie. Yeah, totally. But this felt very much like they were, it felt like, like what we were talking about earlier, how they would like mess with plot elements um, while they were in production, like as they were getting information mm-hmm. from test audiences. I felt like this was a very ineffective way to communicate a relationship with between these two people. Um, from what I'm gathering on the, uh, my research of it, like they, there was a scene where they kissed and they cut that because test audiences did not like that in China. And so it, it makes their relationship throughout the entire film feel very stilted and very awkward. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, ah, it's a shame because like you have such a great opportunity to explore these themes of like gender and identity and like sexual attraction in a very subtle way with this mm-hmm. film, but it just, it, it felt so awkward and ill, uh, poorly handled. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you I, can tell. Oops, sorry. No, no, no. Go for it. Go for it. I was going to say that you could tell along the way that there was a trans identity storyline that was put in this movie that was really hastily cut out. Yeah. Um, because I do have several trans friends that they were like, I've never felt so emotionally in tune with something as the scene of her binding and unbinding. And to me, were some of the only really beautiful storytelling moments of her questioning why she was doing what she was doing. Um, and there was, and there, there apparently at some point was also some sort of romantic implications between her and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the character's name, but the character of the witch played by uh, Li Zhong, um, that there was like, and it's only really there now in the final film and that final scene where she's holding her as she dies. Um, but I think that character got the shit end of the stick. If anybody did that character got, she could have had such an awesome change of story at the end. Cause it's obvious she's only doing what she's doing because she is tied to a uh, body and yeah, I, I wanted so much more for that character, but there was Same. obviously something that they were setting up between Hong Hyu and, and Mulan. And it just doesn't, Again, maybe it's just the the dialogue they use, but I just don't care about any of those characters. I love the three friends are there. They're very fun, but you don't believe that they give a shit about her until that moment where they're like, we believe in Mulan, we believe in Mulan. And I was like, why? You all beat the shit out of her for most of the movie. Well, I'm confused. Right. Um, like the first the first time that they show interest in, in, um, in her is like after she fights Chen Honghu and it's like, oh, wow, I didn't know you were such a killer. But in the animated film, it's because her her drive and her intelligence is the thing that sets the example for the battalion. So like, yeah, they kind of cling onto her as like an example, a model of what to be. It's 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 such mm-hmm. like it's it's kind of disappointing because it, it was a new opportunity to recontextualize the story, and the animated film, for all of its faults, did a really good job of um, like subverting the idea of like what being a man is and like showing mm-hmm. this young woman. Mm-hmm. becoming the ideal soldier and saving this nation. Yeah. And in this one, it just felt, it felt stilted. And like, you're, I think, I think the analogy that I'm trying to go for is like, it felt so noncommittal and mm-hmm. we can feel that. Like there are mm-hmm. so many themes that it wants to set up, but it doesn't ever commit. So it all just feels lackluster. And yeah. the only thing that we really have to cling on to is, well, Mulan's the hero, because the movie's mm-hmm. named after her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if this movie was not made after her, or or what made about her, or we didn't already know this story, I, I don't think I would know what story we're trying to tell, especially when we're adding the phoenix into it. I right. They because because they didn't lean in. If you were gonna go mystical with this, lean the fuck in. Um, but like they didn't. And even the Phoenix I thought was one of the cheapest looking aspects of the movie. Like I didn't think it looked particularly good. Um, and I always knew when it was going to show up and I, uh, I, I, I love the choice in the animated version to, mm -hmm. they leaned into the, um, 
like the ancestor worship and the mysticism of the um of the dragon. Oh yeah. But they made him so incompetent, and that was just mm-hmm. it's I don't know, for me that's incredibly satisfying that reversal. Yeah. Yes, I I agree. And I almost would have loved to seen the ancestor show up. Like if we're leaning into that if we're leaning into the phoenix, if we're leaning into these things, if we're leaning into a shape-shifting witch, which again, they just use witch and we really only see her use a little bit of power. She seems actually quite limited in power um, other than just being a shapeshifter and being incredibly fast in fighting because she's tapped into her chi. Um, and they didn't even give her the payoff of actually that scene between her and Mulan on the sulfur ice crystal. I don't know what that scene was supposed <laughs> to be. Um, especially cause she never falls through the water. Right. I, you know, I almost wanted Mulan to fall through the water and think she's kind of dying. Her ancestors come to her and that's when she decides to go back and present as female. Um, cause there's almost those moments of there is that gender conversation because she seems to be more at home presenting as male and training and doing these things and learning to be the son that her father never wanted or one yeah. never got. Yeah. Um, also, I'm going to tangent for a bit. Pull me back if, if there was another thought you had. I hated the relationship between her and her father. You don't, I don't want to root for him. I don't want her to take care of her family because he just seems like he's written as like the stereotypical Asian dad, and I hated that. Right, a stern father who's all about the image and not, mm-hmm. like, it's, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And again, it, it, it was an issue for me because she obviously has this gift that sets her apart from other human beings. But the mm-hmm. way that they are telling her to hide that gift and shut it down, it just didn't make sense to me. Um, this... Because she's superhuman. <laughs> yeah. It also kind of feels like they looked at Frozen and said, let's use some of that. That'll work. That's why we need a sister, not a grandma. Um, also, I miss grandma. I know she was, uh, you know, a stereotypical the idea of what an Asian grandmother is. But I, she adds so much heart to the movie, that original, that I just... And they also don't give Mulan's mother enough agency. So at that point, you're like, does her family even like her? Do are her is her mother invested at all in her? Like I just, yeah. They made her family look terrible. Like it was just her whole community just seemed awful. And by making her, yeah, and making her a small when they were like she's from a small farming village. I was like, what are you all trying to say? Because you don't ever say what you're trying to say, and it f- seems insulting. It just right. seems insulting. <laughs> yeah. I, and but but the whole the whole fact that she just leaves because her father says that she's useless, and I was like, I, oh, I've got, man, I that just it it left a bad taste in my mouth. It is it is a um, it is a movie that, you know, the animated version for all of its fault had a lot of heart. And we rooted mm-hmm. for Mulan and her her plight in a way that we just don't in this live action remake. And yep. so it's it it is. I think we keep going back to this term, but it's it's a wasted opportunity, and it's a shame. And and in the animated, I feel like she does everything she does for love of her family and her father, and not out of obligation to gain respect. Like right. this 
this almost feels like if Harry Potter had followed Malfoy instead of Harry, and we figured out why Malfoy does what he does to gain the respect and love of his father, it feels very much in that same way, not saying Mulan is evil or anything, but it, it just, I never fully understand, even after I've read several versions of the ballad, uh, several translations, and I don't, I don't get how you could read the ballad, watch the opera, and then somehow give us this movie. Well, like we said before, it's there. That's an issue with having a all-white creative team and trying to placate everyone. You end up placating no one because yeah, it's the work is non-committal. Yeah, yep, I agree. Um, what other thoughts do you have, David, about the the movie of, of some things that just didn't sit right with you? I think, by and large, we got it. Me too. I um, no, I I um, I I think of timing. I think this is the this is something that I've been thinking about after watching this movie. I think of timing, and I think of the support that it, this movie had from the Asian and Asian American communities. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad that this came out post Crazy Rich Asians because yes. Crazy Rich Asians had so much pressure to perform well because it was an Asian-led film, the first major one in Hollywood in like 20 years. So if it hadn't mm-hmm. been a success, it would have set the movement back so many years. Hollywood would have yeah. seen investing in Asian stars and Asian stories as a risk. So I'm very glad mm-hmm. that the tepid response to Mulan has come after we've had the success of something like Crazy Rich Asians, which has started a movement, which has established more creatives in the um, in the industry that are East Asian. Because I think I think if this film had been released pre Crazy Rich Asians, we'd be in trouble right now. Yeah, I also am not sure that this would have gotten the green light for um, um, a studio like major release pre Crazy Rich Asians either. Hmm. Um, but and I loved Crazy Rich Asians. I thought it was great. I know some people had some issues, but I loved it. I thought it was a beautiful film. And just to get to see so many actors who, you know, it's one of the it's one of those things of I also loved any moment where we can flip that idea of that like the Asian guy could be the the heartthrob because that's something that's just never ha- like it's been specifically said in Hollywood for years that that's not a leading man that's not a heartthrob type and I was like you've obviously never looked at my personal dating history <laughs> or you know you know it's just one of those things um, that you know it was there were so many good things good moments and I also just love any moment that I can watch Aquafina and and um, oh she's so oh, good breakout she's star. So so good. Um, I almost would have loved to see Mushu in this and just had Aquafina voice Mushu, frankly. <laughs> oh man, she's she's doing so much, and I'm I'm like she I'm is. here for it. I, I love I love when she pops up in a project. So I have one question for you before we kind of wrap up and uh, we point the audience to where we can find you. What did you think of the Min Mingna Win cameo at the end of the film? When I think of like Disney dames, like that is, she is first and foremost on my mind. I am so glad that despite the issues with this film, I'm glad that there's a, a big part of me. I'm, I'm a big fan of like, um, like reverence to where you came from and like remembering where yep. you came from. And I just love that. Like she was included in this film. Me too. 
I would have liked better for her. I mean, she looked stunning in that costume, though. Right. Because at first you, at first I thought it was going to be Milan, and then I went, because <gasps> someone was like, wait for the cameo at the end, and I was like, what cameo? And I was like, is it B.D. Wong? Uh, is it B.D. <laughs> Wong? Because <laughs> B.D. Wong's in everything. He wants to be in everything. <laughs> right. Yes, he does. Um, <laughs> I, I got to say, I almost wish that she had played the witch, because she's such a badass physical actress that I would have loved to seen a bigger role for her in this, but that's just, that's playing the casting game for later. But I, I love her and Disney obviously loves her. Cause like she pretty much ran agents of shield the last couple seasons. Like her character just did some things and she's great. And I would love to see that. I would love to see may keep coming back in the MCU. Cause she's great. And Disney obviously really likes using her, but and she's, she's playing. I mean, she's playing a great, uh, bounty hunter in the Mandalorian. <gasps> Fennec. Oh yes. Yes, she is. I got so excited when she showed up in season one. I'm a little behind on season two, so I'm hoping she shows up again. Um, but, uh, David, thank you for, uh, indulging me and coming on the show today. Uh, where can the audience find you online? You can find me online on my website, www.davidleehwin.com, Lee with two E's. And you can also catch me on Encounter Party. We're wrapping up our Ravnican campaign. We're in season three. We're streaming an Icewind Dale campaign on Mondays on Twitch. And we'll be releasing info soon about our next campaign set in the world of Isla Brea. Oh, I'm so excited. I literally yelled at Nat a while ago. I was like, Nat, I need Funko Pops of everybody for a <laughs> counter party. Well, thank um, you for and I fan. Bl- that means a lot. <laughs> And I blame Sarah Babe now for my uh, Minotaur Bard that I have been playing with recently yes. because of uh, because of Fakara. <laughs> I oh god, it's in. I've always been a casual D and D person, but Encounter Party has thrown me back in. We've got some things coming from on over here on certain POV, uh, just because everybody uh, Ned was on another show and we've all been listening to Encounter Party, and everybody was like. Oh, we'll never do anything that good, but like, guys, we need to get in on that too. And I was like, yes, we do. Yes, yes, we do. <laughs> well, I, uh, um, I tip my metaphorical hat to you, fellow nerd. Thanks. Well, David, thanks again for being on the show today. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me. It's, pl- it's been a pleasure. <sighs> Great. She brings home a sword. If you ask me, she should have brought home a man. Excuse me. Does Famulan live here? Mulan. Uh. You forgot your helmet. Uh, well, well, actually, it's uh, your helmet, isn't it? I mean... Would you like to stay for dinner? Would you like to stay forever? Hey there, Screen Beans. Have you heard about Screen Snark? Rachel, this is an ad break. They aren't Screen Beans until they listen to the show. Fine. Potential Screen Beans. You like movies and TV shows, right? I mean, who doesn't? Screen Snark is a casual conversation about the movies and television shows that are shaping us as we live our everyday lives. That's right, Matt. We have a chat with at least one incredible guest every episode, hailing from all walks. We've interviewed chefs, writers, costumers, musicians, yoga teachers, comedians, burlesque dancers, folks in the film and TV industry, and more. We'd be delighted for you to join us every other Monday on the Certain POV Podcast Network. Or wherever you get your podcasts, fresh and tasty off the presses. What? But that's no, that's not. Can I call them screen beans now? Fine. Screen beans. So tune in and we'll see you at the movies or on a couch somewhere. Until 
Cause you're a whole screen beans now. You will be mine. Aurora. Thank you as always for your amazing listenership. Knowing you all have come on this journey with me every week has just meant the world to me. As always, interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and across the whole internet. Our link tree is on Facebook and Instagram. Don't forget to go over to the Certain POV Discord where you can interact with other dreamers just like you. Now, coming January 1st is our first episode of Saturday Morning Confidential, where I am joined by Laura Bestjernigan and Eddie Ariola as we discuss the truly outrageous hit, Jim and the Holograms. For one last time, may your days be filled with dull whip and dreams. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.